0: Check out joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts, podcast guests, their employers, or affiliates may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. This is Jesse Pucci, and today we are breaking down Roku. With all the hype about social media and smartphones, it's easy to forget that the average American still spends over five hours a day watching TV. And while the streaming wars got the most headline attention, the battle for the user interface of smart TVs also has billions of dollars at stake. Here, Roku has emerged as an unlikely front-runner ahead of Samsung, Google, Amazon, and other giants. To break down Roku, I am joined by Joe Frankenfield, Portfolio Manager at Saga Partners. We cover Roku's history, dive into its income statement, unpack why it's the leading smart TV platform in the U.S., and what the future holds. Please enjoy this business breakdown of Roku All right, Joe, welcome to Business Breakdowns. Thanks for having me. Excited to talk about Roku. Let's jump right in. So for those who don't know, tell us what is Roku and give us a sense for their scale, size, and business model.
1: Roku is a platform that distributes TV content over the internet. It's the operating system and the user interface of a smart TV. And so they're really the distributor in the internet age for television content they're the largest TV operating system in the United States. They have over 70 million active accounts. And if you compare that to the traditional pay TV distributors, whether that's cable or satellite, that is larger than Comcast, Charter, DirecTV, DISH combined. So they're a very large distributor of TV in the new age of television with the internet. So Conviva is a company that tracks the different TV operating systems and the other competitors of Roku and They estimate Roku has about 40 to 45% of market share of streaming hours in the United States. And that's larger than the next three or four TV operating systems combined. So there's Fire TV, which has maybe 15 to 20% of viewing hours in the US. There's Samsung's Tizen that has about 10%. LG and Apple TV have low single digits. And really, Google TV, which a lot of people are scared of. And when Roku is competing against Google, they're really low single digit
0: type of market share and viewing hours. What scale is the business at in terms of revenue and EBITDA and how has it kind of grown the last few years?
1: They've had strong growth. Their total 2022 revenue was $3.1 billion. They had $1.4 billion in gross profits and they had EBITDA losses in 2022. And the way that they think about their business is they have a device segment and then they have a platform segment. And The device segment is trying to sell the little TV sticks that people buy and plug into the back of their TV. And they really try to target... Break even to even losses on a gross profit margin basis. The platform segment is where they monetize the active accounts. That's been the growth that you've seen in the revenue over the last you know,
0: five or six years. You can describe it as a distributor and almost a new cable, which I want to go into later. But just for the time being, what's the history of Roku, major milestones, and even maybe to the extent you can speak to the evolution of streaming as I assume they're interrelated, interwoven. I'd love to hear how did this all come to be?
1: It's probably good to start with the story of Anthony Wood, because he's the current CEO and the founder of Roku. And he's been in the TV space over the last 20 or 30 years and really into the software and hardware computing space. In high school, he programmed computer games back in the 1980s. He started a software hardware company in college and ran that after college, sold that, and then really where you get closer to the Roku store is he's the inventor of the digital video recorder, the DVR. And he started a company called Replay TV in the late 90s. And that was a big innovation for television where you could record television and not to see it in real times. Unfortunately, he lost out to TiVo in a marketing battle and ended up selling Replay TV in 2001. So then after that, he still wasn't done working. He probably had enough money at the time to retire, but he wanted to see what could be the next step for television. And he knew that internet was going to change the way that media was going to get distributed. So he started Roku in 2002. And that was before they started selling the dongles or TV sticks on the back of your TV. But he wanted to create products that would stream content. So they had a music streaming player, and they had another thing that I think posted images and pictures on the TV. But during that time, he saw what the internet was doing to publishing, what the internet was doing to music. And he reached out and met with Reed Hastings at Netflix to talk about the different dynamics that were changing in the TV industry. And at that time, Netflix was still just mailing DVDs by mail. haven't made the transition into streaming television. Inevitably, he said to Reed and Reed understood this was that we're going to have to change our business and we're going to have to be a streaming company. And so Netflix did start their streaming product in 2007. And at that time, you could only watch Netflix over the internet on your personal computer. And at that time... Reed was interested in growing their own Netflix player to help make it easier for people to watch Netflix on their big screen in their living room. And so he hired Anthony Wood to come to Netflix in 2007 and build that out. They were building that during 2007. And in December of 2007, they were weeks away from launching this product and Reed just pulled the plug on it. And so they had the advertising, they had the distribution, they had the product ready to go. And so they spun out the Netflix player into Roku. So Anthony would, and I forgot to mention at this time, Anthony was still running Roku at the time. So he had this company on the side while he was at Netflix. So that was spun out in 2008. And that's really when Roku was starting to sell these, it was called the Netflix player the first year. And then they changed it to the Roku player in 2009.
0: Wow. And so in 2009, was it a dongle or what did they actually roll out? Was it a piece of software?
1: Yeah, it was like a hockey puck probably was a dongle, or at least would become a dongle next year. Netflix was 100% of the content that Roku had in 2008. It was called the Netflix player by Roku. But soon after, they started an app store so that other content suppliers could then go on to the Roku. And so it wasn't a big surprise to Anthony Wood. And this was actually what he wanted when he was first talking with Reed Hastings, was to work with Netflix and Roku to build this. Well, now he could do this in Roku. But it was obvious there was a conflict of interest between... Netflix, who is trying to be a supplier of TV content, and what this device would be, which would be a distributor of it. So the reason why Reed pulled the plug on it was supposedly he spoke with Steve Jobs at Apple. And Steve Jobs was not interested in having Netflix on the Apple TV, which was one of the few smart TV type devices at the time. And Reed realized this was going to be difficult to really get Netflix on all the different devices and really Roku wanted to be an aggregator of all the suppliers. So it makes sense that they split up and was spun out. Netflix had invested, I think maybe $5 million into Roku, and then also had maybe a quarter of the equity at the time, but Netflix shortly after sold their equity as to
0: not be seen as having a conflict of interest. It was software powering the various pieces of it. How did the content landscape evolve maybe during the five or 10 years that came after it became a device? Not specific numbers, but Hulu and all these other services, how did they start to evolve? Because aren't they critical to make Roku as a device actually valuable? Yeah,
1: definitely. During that time, so Netflix came out around 2007 and Hulu was around the same time and HBO came out around the same time. Really what Hulu was, was a joint venture between the legacy cable companies to test the waters into how they would want to transition into the internet age, but it wasn't all in. So it was a joint venture between... ABC, Fox, and CBS. As you transition from let's say like 2007, 2010 to 2015, you see that the legacy suppliers of TV content started testing the waters, but it really wasn't until the last five or six, probably even less than five years, that where they went all in and realized this is where we need to be going forward in the future because the cable business was a very profitable business it was a bundle of bundles of bundles the broadcasters also had mutual ownership with the cable networks who in certain cases had local TV broadcasters. And also Comcast is a great example. They also had the cable lines that go into people's homes. And so there was a lot of mutual interest in maintaining that bundle. And there wasn't a lot of economics to move over into the internet because the way that you monetize TV was either through advertising or through subscriptions. The cable operators that went into the home would sell your cable bill, $100 a month. And then the cable channels, networks would also have advertising on top of that. But there was not that type of monetization in the internet. So Netflix went full on subscription, SVOD, subscription video on demand. And that worked really well because to convince advertisers to move over, you need eyeballs. And so first you have to get the eyeballs, then the advertisers will move over, which is where we are today.
0: I want to go deep in a second, but before, how do consumers make a decision around this? It sounds like there's Roku, there's Apple TV, there's Fire, Samsung's have something in them. How do consumers make that choice and how does Roku play to try to become the choice provider?
1: early on, there were two main things why Roku was successful in winning over consumers. It was relatively affordable and cheap. It was cheaper than competitors at the time. They did that because Purpose built operating systems. They built their programming language from the ground up for television, as opposed to Google TV or Amazon Fire, which is actually a forked version of Android. It was built for mobile phones. And so... Mobile phones require a lot more RAM, a lot more memory. They're built on HTML5 programming, which means they need a web browser, which you don't necessarily need for television. So it takes more expensive, more powerful chips for their competitors. So Roku had a cost advantage from early on. The other thing is that it was very simple to use. They tried to make it very similar to iPhone, where it's very app-first based, as opposed to content first, because content can get very muddled and confusing for the consumer. But really, they had Netflix, they have Hulu, they have YouTube, they have those things, and very easy click into those apps. And they kept it a very simple user interface. So that helped with the consumer adoption. Now that we look at the playing field today, that alone is not really going to stay a strong differentiator. And today, Roku has a big advantage where they're the largest one. They have 70 million active accounts, the largest share at least within the U.S. And so that's a big advantage just from like a network effect where content wants to be where the consumers are, consumers want to be where the content is, or there's that two-sided network effect. That's a good question that most people ask is, why does someone prefer Roku over Samsung's Tizen operating system? The data that we have so far shows a lot do. So Samsung has maybe 30% or just under 30% market share of TVs in the United States, But they only have 10% of streaming hour market share. So just taking that, two out of three people that buy a Samsung are now either buying Amazon Fire Stick or a Roku stick to then go over the Samsung because the operating systems historically have not been very good and to this day, arguably are still not as good. At least two out of three consumers that buy Samsung agree with that. The other thing that's interesting is that you Look at the overall market, TV space is very price sensitive. A couple of dollars goes a long way if you're trying to get that Black Friday deal at Walmart and you're negotiating with Walmart for the dollar cheaper type of TV.
0: So let's go into the PL of Roku in a little bit more detail. So, earlier you mentioned obviously they're selling the dongles at break even, then they make a lot of their money from subscription. I think there's advertising is a big part of the business too. So, maybe walk us through the major pieces of revenue, major parts of gross profit, and then how you think. They're driving growth in those segments,
1: like I said earlier, their revenues last year were three point one billion dollars. And that's broken up into their two main segments, which is devices and the platform segment. The device segment, which had maybe around four hundred million dollars last year, had losses. And so historically, they try to have a be around break even on a gross profit margin basis. Covid caused a lot of supply chain disruptions where they subsidized those inflationary costs that they experienced. So, at a negative gross profit margin last year. The platform segment, which is where they're monetizing their active accounts, it was around $2.8 billion, just under $3 billion. So it makes up the majority of their business, which was not always the case. Now they're able to monetize the viewing hours on their TV better. So on a gross profit margin basis, the platform segment is above 60, around 60%, but it's trended down over the last decade or so, or last five to 10 years. And the reason... behind that is you can think of how they monetize it is... Let's take their advertising. It can either be first party or third party advertising. So Roku will take a piece of the advertising that goes over their platform. So if you're Fox and you have nine minutes of advertising going over Roku, Roku will take three minutes of that and they will sell that and Fox will sell six minutes on their own. So that's first party. And if it's first party, it's a really high margin. It can be 80, 85% type of first party advertising type of margins. If it's third party, which means that Roku is selling on behalf of its content partners. So let's say Fox says, I'll let, I'll give you the nine minutes of advertising and then you sell it and then I'll take a cut. And that's closer to like a 50-50% type of margins. And that's been an increasing part of their business over time, especially as the Roku channel has grown in viewing hours. Cause in the Roku channel, they manage all the inventory and then they have more of a revenue share agreement. And similar, they also have revenue share for the subscriptions. So if you're spending $10 for a subscription, Roku might get $2 of that. Or if they do the subscriptions in the Roku channel, Roku will recognize the $10 as revenue and then four down the $8 in COGS, and then they'll have a $2. So it's just an accounting.
0: So it's almost like three businesses. It sounds like they're selling you hardware, which is basically free break even. They don't make any money on that. There's this $2 they get whether or not it passes through them or not, they're getting $2 per sub. And then there's this advertising business, which has both first and third-party ad sales.
1: Yeah, and I would even just say that their device business isn't a profit center at all. It never will be, never is what they want to make money from. But the way they monetize their platform can evolve. There is different ways they go about that. And that's advertising, whether that's within the content they watch or it's on the user interface, which is their... ME type of advertising first party too. And suppliers will say, I want to push this Disney film and it'll be on the user interface. And then there's buttons on the remote control. And then there's also just discovery. If you need to discover content and search, it's similar to having those end caps in retail.
0: Or search ads, which we see everywhere now these days.
1: Exactly. I mean, if the business of Roku is the Apple iOS, it's the Android OS, they are the retailer of television. So, if you want to get prioritization or priority in your content, then you will pay for that. And whether that's through advertising or through being easily available through search or things like that.
0: So when you think about the businesses, maybe gross profit or contribution, obviously the device provides zero, but it's critical to get people on there. How does the advertising versus the subscription compare in terms of size? Which one's bigger?
1: Advertising is bigger. They haven't disclosed what the makeup of it is recently, but a couple of years ago they said that two-thirds of their platform revenues were advertising. One-third was subscription or on-demand. Advertising part of their business has grown faster. So I imagine that's higher today. They are largely an advertising business.
0: People look at cable providers. They're often talking about number of subscribers, ARPUs, those kinds of things. Is that the way investors look at Roku? Is that the way you would look at it? Is how many users they have? How much are they making per user? Is there some other mental model you use for the business?
1: That's right. Yeah. It's how many active accounts do they have? What is the ARPU per those accounts? And then you can go through the different line items of the costs, but their ARPU is trying to grow the revenue generation of those active accounts over time.
0: That makes sense. So now they have the gross profit. What's below gross profit in terms of the major cost centers and what's important, what's not important below that gross profit line?
1: Yeah. Historically, the management has targeted EBITDA even. They've always wanted to invest all the gross profits they have because this is a huge space where they're just trying to take advantage. It's in land grab mode right now. They're trying to grow active accounts. So they're reinvesting as much as possible and as much as reasonable. How do they reinvest it? Most of their SGA are people. I think they said maybe three quarters of their SGNA are the people. It's the people that are engineering, the software engineers, which is in research and development. And then there's the sales and marketing. And those are the two big line items out of the three, because the third one's administrative.
0: R&D makes sense to me, in the administrative, and then I assume they have a big sales force for selling ads to advertisers. How do they acquire customers? The old cable guys had customer acquisition costs and recurring revenue. Is that how you look at their business or is their marketing and the way they acquire customers different?
1: They're infamous for not advertising Roku. So you won't see a Roku commercial saying, buy this device. Where they do put their advertising dollars or their marketing dollars is in the retailers, getting the end caps, because that costs money to do that, or the team that builds out their displays and retailers, the integrations they have with TV OEMs. So that's where they spend the money, but also with their sales team to get those direct advertising dollars or supporting their advertising technology platform. So that's where those dollars go to. From a customer acquisition cost standpoint, Anthony Wood would say they used to have a $0 customer CAC now it's negative. So let's say last year when they had a decent negative gross profit margin, it was like $10 per acquired user last year. But then you can bake into like the marketing expenses and see how much it took to acquire those customers. But the sales and marketing, arguably a good chunk of that is fixed just to support their sales team, to get advertisers. And like probably a good chunk is just to grow out that team as they go internationally or try
0: to expand into different areas. The question maybe that's coming up for me most is why have they won? Is it just price? Do you think the first mover and price? Is that the two things? Or why do you think they're by far the market leader?
1: The simple answer is that Roku has executed really well. I mentioned that Roku has a cost advantage and it's really easy to use, which drove early customer adoption. Roku did benefit from being early, but they actually weren't the first mover. The first mover was Apple TV, which launched in early 2007. The reason why Apple TV struggled was that they had a higher price point. They were about $300 at a time and they limited the number of apps that were on their device. And then Roku launched about a year or so later and they were maybe $100 at the time and were really good at getting all the available content on Roku and being very easy to use, which drove early customer adoption. A couple of years after that is when Google and Amazon entered the streaming device space. So Google came in with their Chromecast and they didn't have as much success because there was much more of a mobile focused device where they didn't come with the remote control. And you really had to control how you access content through your phone, which customers didn't really like as much. Amazon came with their Fire TV stick and they did have a lot of success. They had a low price point. They were well integrated in the Amazon ecosystem. And so they did win a lot of adoption. And if you fast forward 10 years from there to the present, the streaming device space is split between Roku and Amazon Fire with each having about 40% market share in the US. And then the remaining 20% of the market share is really split between many different players. What's happening now is that the TV operating system is being integrated into the actual hardware of the TV. So while streaming devices initially enabled TVs to connect to the internet, TV operating system battle is moving on to being in the TV itself. And similar to how phones became smartphones, TVs are becoming smart TVs or really they're computers. All TVs are coming with built-in operating systems that run third-party software and there is the debate of whether the operating system dynamics are moving towards consolidation or fragmentation. But if you look at the history of computing, the natural economics of operating system is to move to a standard, to move to a few key winners. When IBM was selling their mainframe 360, they provided the operating system, which was a standard across all of the computers, which were largely IBM's. And then as computing became faster and cheaper and moved into the personal computer space, IBM decided to license the operating system from Microsoft in the 1980s. And then the other hardware manufacturers, OEMs, decided to license from Microsoft as well. And Microsoft became the standard. And IBM realized the power of owning the personal computer operating system. And they entered the space in the early 90s. It was already too late. Microsoft Windows already had the most adoption, the most applications. It didn't matter that IBM had greater scale and multiples of the R&D dollars compared to Microsoft. It's just that Microsoft was now the standard. The same dynamic happened with mobile phones, where Nokia and BlackBerry had the largest market share in the early 2000s, and they had their own operating systems. But then eventually, Google came out with Android operating system, which was adopted by all the other smaller mobile phone OEMs. And those mobile phone OEMs stole market share and they became the standard. And so the same dynamic is happening with TVs today, where TV OEMs, they have to decide, do they want to build their own OS, homegrown one, or do they want to license one from a Roku, Google TV, or Amazon Fire? What we have seen is the smaller TV OEMs that have licensed their OS from, let's say, a Roku have gained market share at the expense of the larger TV OEMs who have decided to not license them. So for example, TCL and Hisense went from essentially no market share in the US in 2017 to over 20% by 2021. That's after they decided to license their OS from Roku. Vizio went from 30% market share in 2017 to, I think it was the low teens by 2021. So that's the trends to date. And the question is, why is Roku being successful in their licensing of the OS as opposed to Google TV and Amazon Fire TV. Google was first to market. They started licensing their Google TV in 2010. Roku started licensing in 2014 and Amazon more recently in 2017. Google has faced some hiccups with bugs and shifts in focus between focusing on Android TV or Google TV. And while the Google TV device market share isn't really available... Google TV streaming hour market share is only around 4% in the US, which is pretty comparable to PlayStation and Xbox, which don't really have the best user interfaces and aren't really as focused on the operating system. Amazon has also faced headwinds in licensing their Fire OS, which is largely due to Google. Amazon's Fire operating system is a forked version of Android's OS, and Google restricts major TV OEMs from licensing any forked version of Android, which includes Amazon. TV OEMs have been hesitant to license from Amazon. And then the second major reason why Amazon has faced some headwinds is that major retailers who sell a large share of TVs in the US, largely like Walmart and Target, they view Amazon as their direct competitor. They're less inclined to sell Amazon TVs as opposed to Roku TVs, which makes TV OEMs hesitant to wanting to license from Amazon. If you dig down a little deeper than that too roku has been successful in licensing comes down to a lot of the little things that they do right so not only does roku provide the software but they also maintain the software updates which happen frequently google tv largely leaves it up to the oem to maintain it roku designs the main board for the oem they certify the manufacturing factory they help source the components they help get attractive placements with retail partners and then just to top it off, like I mentioned earlier, Roku requires cheaper chips because their OS requires less memory and processing power. So the hardware costs lower for OEMs, yet the Roku still provides great performance. I mean, they consistently have the lowest video start failures, the shortest video start times, and they have the least buffering times as measured by Convivo. So all of this has led to Roku winning the majority of the US market. The question is how durable is it?
0: Probably it's pretty durable. I'm also curious, durability, how dependent on it is an Anthony Wood?
1: There are phases of businesses in their life stages when the founder is so important. Anthony Wood's been there from the beginning. He has a great background in TV and this vision. And I think it's been really helpful or beneficial to Roku that he controls the company. He controls the voting interests of the public shares. And when there is pressures to go one way or the other, he has his vision. You can go back to 2009. There are interviews on YouTube from Anthony Wood when he just a year into making Roku where he said, there's going to be a few winners. All TV is going to be streamed. It's the future of the TV operating system. And this is why Roku is going to win. And he says the same answer when when, when it was 2009 or if it was 2023. But to answer your question, how important is Anthony Wood? I think he was very important originally. He still is. But if you remove Anthony Wood and put in a CEO, will Roku's market share in the US go down? I think there is still so much innovation that can happen on the TV operating system. Hence why Roku invests every dollar that they can into the R&D. But there's a point where you reach scale and they're still early on in their life cycle, but it's not nearly as important versus 10 years ago or five years ago.
0: Looking at some of their p is a difference between EBITDA and cash flow. What are the big uses of cash? Are there major CapEx things? Do they have some working capital dynamics in their business?
1: There really isn't a big working capital component in selling streaming services or licensing their OS. Most of Roku's expenses are salaries paid to their employees and R&D and sales and marketing people, which make up about three quarters of their total costs. Very little of the software development is actually capitalized and it runs through their P&L. The key difference between EBITDA and operating cash flow comes from the timing of payments with content assets, which are acquired for the Roku channel. So they launched the Roku channel in 2017 as a way to aggregate content that would be free to watch for viewers and monetized through advertising. Initially, they had licensing agreements with content partners, so the cost of that content showed up as a variable expense on the income statement. But as the Roku channel has gained more scale, I think it reaches over 100 million people now. Roku is able to invest more in the rights of the content, which shifts the timing of the payments from being more variable to being more fixed and upfront, which then amortize over the life of the asset. So if you look at Roku's cash flow statement, there's a big line item for content assets. And then there's another big line item for amortization of those content assets. And over the last two years, those line items have grown. I think in 2022, there was a use of cash of maybe $80 million. Maybe it was the use of cash of $100 million in 2021. So that's probably the biggest discrepancy between EBITDA and operating cash flow. And there are other things to point out. And the timing element is in their advertising platform, the demand side platform, DataZoo, which they acquired in 2017 is now called OneView. And there's a timing between the receipt of payments for when they purchase inventory on behalf of advertisers. There's a difference between the payments from advertisers to when they actually pay for the ad inventory, so there's a little bit of discrepancy there in the working capital.
0: Another one that I'm curious about is M and A. Who's on their shopping list, and maybe more interestingly, whose shopping list are they on?
1: In the past year or so, there's been a lot of headlines that talk about Roku selling to. Why doesn't Roku sell to Google or sell to Amazon? And they have. I mean, in the past, there were rumors that Amazon tried to acquire them. I forgot what year that was, but it was before they were public would make sense for Samsung or something to acquire Roku. But Anthony Wood has said this consistently is that this is such a huge opportunity. There's 1 billion broadband households across the world, and there's maybe 120 million in the US and the Roku focused in the US, but this is such a huge opportunity and all TVs going to get streamed. The demand for TV is insatiable. Selling it now would be way too early. And he wants to be the winner of this space. And fortunately, I mean, sure he might get offers, but Roku, he can decide whether it makes sense to sell Roku he said he's made enough money from his prior businesses. It's not necessarily about the price you get now. It's about the opportunity in the future. For Roku acquiring other companies, really, they haven't had big acquisitions. It's been more like small ones with content. They made an acquisition of DataZoo a couple of years ago to help grow their programmatic advertising allocation. And so it's been opportunistic, nothing overly material because the core of their business is just land grab, growing active accounts, and then monetizing through advertising.
0: I want to look forward a little bit and curious if five or 10 years from now, Roku surpasses even the wildest, most optimistic expectations. What are a couple things that they really got right? And what are a couple things that happened in the market for that to have occurred? It's really execution, continuing to execute. They've done very
1: well in the US. And now the question is, can they replicate that abroad? And they really only pushed abroad in recent years. I think. Canada was their first country they really moved into. That was maybe in 2016. They licensed their first TV. By 2019, they might have had three or four TV OEMs that licensed Roku in Canada. And now they're the largest smart TV market share by the TV sold in the past year in Canada. Now they're doing that with Mexico as well. When they really started making a push into Mexico, I think it was late 2018. And now they're largest TV OS in in Mexico. So we have small signs that their model of Being consumer friendly, licensing their TV OS and growing active accounts is working. And then the question is monetization. And so right now they're also moving in Brazil and UK or other big countries. They've moved into Germany. So they're starting to be very targeted about where they want to move abroad, moving into the larger TV markets. So I think international is the big question mark. If they're very successful, they will continue to consolidate abroad. Where else would they go right is just being able to really shift more and more dollars from linear traditional TV over into the connected TV space. And that's inevitably going to happen. The question is how fast it will happen. And advertisers are very conservative about trying new things, but they eventually follow the eyeballs. And so now connected TV is almost going to surpass all of cable and broadband TV share combined. It's already the largest segment from a distribution standpoint. So eventually the advertising dollars will come through. So those are the two things I pay attention to over time.
0: And what about the flip of that? If they end up, doesn't work out, they end up becoming also ran in the next five or 10 years. What happened?
1: The big picture is that all TV will eventually be connected TV. All content, whether it is the old library catalog content or live sports and news, will be viewed over the internet. So there is this big shift in TV content distribution from cable and over the air to the internet. the question then becomes, how will the value chain of television look end-state? I painted a picture where there's a few large TV operating systems end-state, where Roku is likely to be one of them, that act as the aggregators of TV content supply, and they help viewers filter and navigate and pay for the fragmenting and proliferating options to watch but I think what could be a risk to that is what may happen with TV content and the supply of content. And if it consolidates to one or two big players, then they would have more power over the distributors of content. So the largest one being Netflix right now has maybe 230 million subscribers across the world. And if really the end state has Netflix and maybe Disney and maybe YouTube control the majority of TV content that would have a lot of power over someone like Roku. If you look at the long-term trends though, Netflix and the share of streaming hours among all the different streamers, the streaming applications, the large streamers have been losing share over time. And it's not because they're not growing. They're just not growing as fast as, let's say, Streamers that are advertisers or videos on demand are AVOD streamers. AVOD or advertising video on demand is growing at a faster rate than these subscription services. And so the long-term trends show growth, but fragmentation among a handful of players and continuing consolidation or concentration between the TV operating systems. But that's something I would watch as a potential risk of Roku as we get closer and closer to end state or maturity of the space. And the other thing I would think about as a risk is what's happening with the direct competitors with really Google TV and Amazon TV. And I spoke about it earlier, but those are very large and powerful companies with a lot of resources. And supposedly Google already subsidizes TV OEMs to have a revenue share type of agreement to license the Google TV. I think that's largely with TCL. So they do have the resources to incentivize other players in the ecosystem to adopt or license their OS. I think when you look at, the United States, at least, Roku has reached a scale where they have durability in maintaining market share, if not growing it over time. And the big question is what happens abroad. The last thing I would point out is advertising. So there's a shift of advertising dollars that's going from linear TV to connected TV. And how those advertising dollars are allocated is really important and something to pay attention to so roku has an advantage relative to a smaller operating systems because they have the greatest reach which advertisers love which draws advertising dollars to them and potentially get higher cpms for their ad inventory however if you look at the ecosystem a company like the Trade desk which can aggregate advertising dollars across all the different tv operating systems would then mitigate or i guess make that advantage that roku has in their scale less so it would give someone like Google TV or Vizio operating system similar advantage in scale if it's allocated through something like the trade desk. So that's something to also pay attention to. And then if you think really long term, I guess as a risk, whoever controls the big screen in your living room is in a powerful position. It's the operating system of TV. However, if viewers' habits change over time, where they consume TV content not through the big screen, through a different way, that would then lower the earning power of whoever controls the big screen in the living room. So if something like the metaverse does come to fruition, a big technological paradigm shift, the legacy or old operating system would lose their earning powers. That's probably a lot further down the road, but that's something to pay attention to that if consumers watch more and more content through virtual reality of some sort, then whoever controls the TV operating system would have less earning power. So those are the different threats I would think Roku has long-term.
0: Last question, the three-parter, what do you think the big lesson is from the Roku story for builders? What do you think the big lesson is for investors? And where should someone look to learn more about Roku?
1: Roku is a platform business. And that's an important thing to keep in mind. And when you're building a platform, you have a lot of third-party players that have to come together and work together it's hard to see in the financials, the economics today, as opposed to where they potentially could be in end state. And so Roku, what they've done so well is they knew where to subsidize a part of that platform. There's a lot of arguments that have been made that saying they've let Netflix or YouTube onto their platform without taking a lot of take rate from them. And I think that's exactly what they need to do because it's land grab mode. While if you study the story of Alibaba and eBay going into China, that's exactly why eBay lost in China. One of the reasons, because they tried to monetize too soon. They tried to go against and then consumers didn't adopt them and they lost this huge market to Alibaba. A similar dynamic in this where they just need to get market share. That's the number one priority. And then monetize, they have to be economical while they're reinvesting, but at the right pace. So The lesson is know when to subsidize and when to monetize when you're making a platform. It's a little bit different from when you have a product like a car and you just want to sell that car at a gross profit versus the operating systems. The other thing is just focus. You can go to any company, but knowing what you do well and knowing what others do well. And I think Roku has been really good at knowing when it makes sense to let a third party do something or when they do it. So whether that's creating content, whether they want to license content to when they start creating content, that's a shift in the business story, but it made sense for them because they're looking at the data. They know where the value proposition is. They're trying to fill gaps, similar to now making their own TVs. They just announced this past year that they're going to make their own Roku TVs. And the question is, if they would have done that five years ago, it would have been wrong because they needed to license their OS. And now all the smaller OEMs want Roku as a partner, but... If you take it from Vizio standpoint, Vizio started as a hardware company, and then they got more into the operating system because they saw the opportunity, but they approached it from the hardware perspective. And what competitors want to license a direct competitor? Well, Now, from a Roku standpoint, all the small OEMs are generally licensing Roku, but Roku sees pockets where they might need to invest in certain areas within the hardware or get into the higher-end TVs, like the Samsungs, where there is not many Rokus to fill that need.
0: And where would you guide people if they want to learn more about Roku or this category in general?
1: There's nothing like reading past filings and earnings transcripts. And there are numerous interviews with Anthony Wood all the way back to the earliest days of Roku. And I think to learn more about the overall space, I found the book, The Business of Media Distribution, to be really helpful. It's long, but it's helpful. And then to learn about how media has been really impacted by... The internet and the digital age, the book, media in the digital age is a great way to learn about the changes the media industry is facing. And one author, Amanda Lotz, she wrote some books about this topic. One that was really helpful was, we now disrupt this broadcast. That's a good way to learn about the space.
0: Well, Roku is a fascinating story. You wouldn't appreciate how they've got this three-way network effect going between the equipment manufacturers, the content and consumers. And so Thanks for coming on the show today and breaking it down for us. Thanks, Jesse. It was great to be here. To find more episodes of Breakdowns ranging from Costco to Visa to Moderna, or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out JoinColossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S dot com.